In today's podcast, I'm visiting with my eye doctor, Dr. Jared Davies. We discuss what it takes to become a board-certified optometrist in vision development. Dr. Davies is going to give suggestions for infants and children, treatment options, advocacy for accommodations in the schools, cues or things to watch for in determining whether someone has a vision issue, sports vision, and home activities that help vision development. And I really loved the suggestions that he makes regarding what we can do to improve our eyesight. And so that you know a little bit more about him, I'm going to toot his horn a little bit and introduce him to you. Dr. Jared Davies received his Doctorate of Optometry in 2009 from the Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee. While attending Southern College, Dr. Davies was honored with numerous awards, including the Alumni Endowed Scholarship, the 2008 Robert D. Sullivan ODVSP Excellence in Primary Care Scholarship Award, and the 2009 Southern College of Optometry Outstanding Clinician Award. After moving back to Utah to be close to his extended family, Dr. Davies completed his fellowship with the College of Optometrists in Vision Development, COVD, in 2012, becoming one of only two board-certified optometrists in the state of Utah who specialized in vision therapy. As a side note, the other doctor at the time was Dr. Robin Price, who was the doctor that he worked with and was the first doctor that I saw. There are now five board-certified doctors in the state of Utah, according to the COVD website. In 2013, he was voted the Utah Optometric Association Young Optometrist of the Year. In 2015, he was awarded the Utah Optometric Association Optometrist of the Year, the highest honor given to optometrists in Utah. When he isn't working with patients, Dr. Davies is spending time with his beautiful wife, Angie, and their seven wonderful children. He also enjoys playing sports, running, solving Rubik's Cubes, and juggling. Dr. Davies is well known for his friendly demeanor. Whether you are trying to improve your vision for basketball or reading, working through rehabilitation, or just getting an eye exam, Dr. Davies wants to help all of his patients achieve their vision goals and enjoy their time in his office. And I'll add here that I've always enjoyed my time in his office and felt his priority really is to help his patients achieve their vision goals. I have continuing goals and he's very supportive of those goals. Without further ado, let's jump into today's podcast. Today, I'm so happy to be talking to my eye doctor, Dr. Jared Davies, and he is going to be answering some questions for us that I hope will be very valuable for all of you listeners today. First off, let's have you tell us a little bit about what made you decide to become a developmental optometrist. So that's, that's a little bit of a long answer, but I will do my best to answer it concise. So I had a great optometrist growing up named Bruce Parsons. He's 95 years old now. He's still alive. And I decided I wanted to do optometry mostly because he was a really happy person. And I thought, if he can be happy doing that career, I think I can be happy doing that career. As I looked more into it, I discovered there's different areas of optometry, of course, and learned a little bit about developmental optometry before I even went to optometry school from a couple of other students that had actually done some vision therapy. And that was when I was at BYU for my undergrad degree. 
when I went to optometry school during my second year, there was a Dr. Carol Scott that came to the optometry school and gave an overview of what vision therapy and developmental optometry is. And I just kind of caught the vision of, of what she was saying, uh, partially because I have family members that have some vision problems. And it just kind of clicked to me that they could have some vision problems that people could help with. And to tell you the truth, everyone in optometry school learns vision therapy. Everyone goes through rotations to do pediatric optometry, vision therapy, strabismus, all the things that you talk about on your podcast. But you have to be passionate about it to really learn more and understand what you want out of school. And so as that talk happened, I just caught the vision and decided that that's something I wanted to do. So I sought out time in the vision therapy clinic in school. I visited other practices that did vision therapy in the area and just tried to learn as much as I could. And then, of course, graduated from optometry school, went to work in a practice that was a developmental optometry practice and, and provided vision therapy and eventually started my own. Excellent. There were so many topics that I wanted to discuss with you that it was really hard to pin it down. So what I wanted to go into first off was a little bit maybe about how someone can find the doctor that's qualified to do vision therapy if they're looking for that as an option. Can you talk, address that just a little bit for us? Absolutely. So as I said, everyone learns a little bit about vision therapy at optometry schools. So every optometrist should know what developmental optometry is, and, and, but they may not specialize in it and may not have the knowledge to really find every problem that would benefit from vision therapy. There is a certification program. It's a postgraduate certification program. Well, let me back up a little bit. There is the residencies in vision therapy as well. Residencies in optometry are optional. They're a one-year residency. The, the fellowship that you do with optometry is three years, so it is the more rigorous certification program. You can get a residency and fellowship, but you also can get fellowship without residency. It's not required as part of the fellowship process. But the College of Optometrists and Vision Development, which is known as COVD, is the certifying body for vision therapy. It's a three-year postgraduate fellowship. So you have to have three years of clinical training in vision therapy, which means you have to work somewhere that does vision therapy. There is certification tests. There is essays that you write. It's actually a series of nine essays, including three case studies that you have to submit showing what you did. That's a pretty rigorous process. It's done over about the course of a year. Then there's a certification test, a proctor test like board certification that you go in and take and have to pass. And then after that, to get the fellowship, there's also a oral interview process. Usually there's three doctors that are involved in that oral interview process that interview you and try to make sure you have the knowledge and understanding to be considered a fellow in that program. And if you pass the interview and the testing and all those essay questions, you receive your fellowship. Along with that fellowship, there is continuing education that you have to do every year to maintain your certification because it is a board certification that has to be maintained and updated every year. Okay. Look for an optometrist that has that fellowship. 
Right. And there's a pretty good search engine on the CLVD site that will tell people how they can find those particular doctors, right? And we're talking just about the States right now, correct? There is actually international fellowship as well. Uh, So the the CLVD.org website, if you go to the locate a doctor link on that, it does have U.S. and international as well. Obviously, the international base of fellows is not quite as big as what's in the U.S. because it is a U.S.-based organization. But there are now chapters in other countries as well. Uh, Canada has a chapter. There is some Asian chapters as well where you can get international fellowship. So, okay. And I actually know quite a few fellows outside of the United States. Okay. I didn't realize that. I, I know I have a couple of listeners that are in some other places, so I just wanted to make sure we addressed that a little bit. How do they decide what doctors are on that board? I'm just curious. So it is a nomination process. You have to be nominated by someone that's currently on the board. And then the board as a whole votes for who will come in. They nominate you based on your clinical knowledge and your experience and try to make sure that they get people that are knowledgeable enough to critique others. So generally, for every fellow, there has to be three doctors interviewing them. And I'm on the board currently. I told you before we got on this podcast that I was nominated last year. It was a surprise to me. I didn't know I was going to be nominated. It is a volunteer position. There's not a lot you get back from it besides the, <laughs> I guess, prestige of peers or something. But <laughs> it's a lot of work. Right now, just this last week, I have read through, I think, 35 to 40 essays and critiqued and graded them. And and then obviously there's a back and forth process with it. So the doctors that are on it, they they have to agree to that nomination and then they have Mm -hmm. to be confirmed by that board. And then it's a three-year position once you get on that board. Okay. So a lot of extra work on your part for the three years that you're doing that. Yep. It it is definitely, and certainly uh, it's, some parts of it are very enjoyable because you learn what other people's thought patterns are and how they do cases, but it is, it can be tedious as well, so. I'm sure, yeah, it sounds like that. So let's address some of the questions that uh, the parents have been bringing up on some of the support groups that I've looked at. One of the things that I also wondered as I read these questions is what do you actually do when a parent brings you an infant that has exhibited signs of their eyes crossing and they're they're wondering what to do to help them? I'd like to start by saying that more parents should bring their infants in. There is a program called Infant C. It's infantsee.org. And that program is a free program where kids from six months to a year old can get a free eye exam. Actually, it's any kid under a year old, but we usually recommend you wait until they're about six months unless there's a concern. But for those that do have a concern, they can bring them in at at any point. People don't realize how much we can test on an infant's eyes because they think we need to get feedback or or someone talking to us to know how they're seeing but there are methods with, there's something called a retinoscope. It's basically a light that we shine into the infant's eyes. We wiggle that light back and forth so that we can see 
a reflex, kind of like the red reflex you see in the camera flash or an old camera flash. We don't get those red reflexes anymore with automated systems. But that red reflex will actually tell us a lot about how the child is focusing. So we can take an infant, shine a light in their eyes, put different lenses in front of their eyes and tell what their prescription is, tell whether they're farsighted or nearsighted or whether they're having struggles with astigmatism or other conditions that would cause problems with them seeing. We also, in rare cases, can find infantile cataracts that need to be taken care of or amblyopia or a lazy eye that needs to be taken care of. Um, One thing that people don't realize about infants, too, they don't have very great control of their eyes when they're born. Uh, I think everyone that's a parent has seen their infants do something different with their eyes than they're used to seeing. And I, I encourage parents that intermittent little eye turns that happen very infrequently are normal. Although I always encourage parents that that's the case. I have seven kids and with every one of my kids, I have worried about the same things that every other parent worries about because it's different when it's your own kid. (laughs) But it is a normal thing. That's why we usually encourage people to not bring them in until they're about six months old because that's when they're starting to develop the coordination of their eyes and we can use different methods to determine, are the eyes lined up? Are they both seeing at the same time? Is there one eye that's weaker than the other? Those types of things. As kids get older into their toddler ages, we can tell even more because we, we can start to test depth perception as soon as they can reach or, and try to grasp things. We can use different 3D models to see, do they reach for a 3D model or do they feel like it's flat on a piece of paper? So there's a ton we can tell on an infant that people just don't realize. Okay. Once you do see an an issue, what kinds of things do you do to treat it at that early age? Sure. So it, it depends on the issue. It depends on the situation. But for something like strabismus or an eye turn, we may consider doing patching. We may consider doing just movement exercises, There's varying things that we can do to try and encourage an eye to fixate or look in the right place, but it very much depends on what their diagnosis is. Okay. So you can't give any little tips on what you can do to encourage your child to use their eyes correctly or anything? Sure we can. Uh, (laughs) You know, one, one thing to consider for those that bottle feed a baby when, when a baby's breastfed, they switch sides a lot. When we bottle feed a baby, we don't switch sides as much. And the pediatricians usually encourage people to switch sides, but that has a lot to do with visual development as well. Because if the baby's being fed, usually they're looking up at you. And if they're always looking in one direction, they're not getting the same type of input to both eyes. Another thing to consider is when you lay a baby in their crib, it's good to to vary the ways you lay them down so they're not always looking to one side of the room uh, so that they can get good scanning left to right. Uh, Tummy time is actually important for vision development as well because you get the eye movements in a vertical fashion. When they're on their tummy, they're looking up towards you and, and trying to scan and reach for things. Usually, the biggest thing you can do to help your child's development when they're very young is get them to move and get them to change positions. And that goes for when they start to be fed by spoon as well. You know, if you sit them in one direction and always feed them face on, 
and do the same direction there. You're not developing vision as much as if you sit on one side or the other and constantly try to make them move and look and target things. So those are general activities that they can do. Excellent. I like that a lot. Is the treatment a lot different when you're talking infants versus older children because of the responses that they can give? Certainly there is some differences because an older child can do more as far as therapeutically than an infant can. I would say it always starts with getting them in the correct correction for their vision if they have a deficit like farsightedness or nearsightedness. We often put infants in glasses, but there is limits on what we can do therapeutically with a very young kid. Okay. Do you, do you encourage people to start the treatment early, early like that, or to wait a little, until they're a little bit older? We definitely want them to start as young as possible. It's a lot easier if we catch things younger, purely because we can start to guide development at an earlier age, so we can mitigate some of those things that may turn into accommodations that they use that may not be the best accommodation. So the younger, the better. That's why we really encourage those infant eye exams, because if we catch something, even if the parent doesn't know what's going on, often we can catch things that could be corrected early. Okay. I've I've read some comments, too, though, that, that people have said their doctor told them it was too late to do anything. Is it ever too late? So there is this concept called the critical period, and... It actually started with some research that was done about 50 years ago by doctors Hubel and Weisel. They were doctors that did studies on cats, and they were trying to cause lazy eye on cats. And they found that after a certain period, they couldn't cause a lazy eye. Nowhere in their treatment or in their studies did they say that they couldn't treat a lazy eye. They just said they couldn't cause it. There was this inference that there is this critical period that after which you cannot treat anything. And for years and years in medical textbooks, it's said varying things like six or seven years old is after that it's too late and there's nothing you can do. And that's just not the case. Modern studies show that there's definite ways we can improve even adults. Um, Certainly the younger, the better, because we can prevent it from ever being a problem in the first place. But I've had tons of adults in my clinic that were told for years that there was nothing they could do with their lazy eye and tons of success stories with those same people after they've been through therapy and been able to gain back vision they thought they would never have. So the the brain is very plastic. There is ways of resetting some of those mechanisms to make it change again. There's a great quote from a doctor at a conference I was at that and I can't even remember who the doctor was right now, so I apologize if someone's listening to this that thinks I didn't give him credit, but someone said, there is a critical period, and it starts when you're born, and it ends when you die. And I love that concept. (laughs) Because we have to correct your vision somewhere in between then. Right. Yeah. And we have the opportunity to do it somewhere in between then too, right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how your procedure would differ from what might be suggested if someone goes to, say, an ophthalmologist or a regular optometrist. So because I specialize in therapy, I have different tools than 
a ophthalmologist or an optometrist, a regular optometrist would have. And I've had this discussion actually with a pediatric ophthalmologist that does strabismus surgery. In fact, he's the one that did your surgery, Denise. And we, we talked about it and he, he said, you know, traditionally he has always recommended surgery because that's the tool he has. And his bias is towards surgery for eye turns. And I would add that my bias is probably towards therapy for eye turns too. Right. And as we sat and discussed it over lunch one day, we, we kind of both realized we both have our tools and neither tool is a wrong tool. Um, they're just different for different people. So that we're certainly going to look at things differently than he does because he's looking at things from an anatomical standpoint and a surgical standpoint. But certainly he wants function of the eyes as well. But I'm going to base everything I look on more on function than on cosmetics or anatomical standpoints. So we do treat things differently. The, the best situation you can have is to have people that work together and understand both because just like in your situation where it required a team, mm -hmm. there's definitely a team involved in a lot of situations. But the hope is with therapy that we can correct things and prevent you from having to do other things as well. Um, so if we can correct an eye turn without surgery, that's the ideal situation because the, the first rule of medicine is first do no harm. And if we took look at that rule, we want to do the thing that's going to be most beneficial to the patient with the least amount of harm. And that's mm -hmm. where therapy shines. Right. Well, and I, I think I've probably mentioned it before when I've talked with people, but what I saw in my own family is that my daughter, who had the same problem with me, got it corrected when she was 10 instead of having to go through what I did. Yep. And she didn't have the surgery. Yeah, and in her situation, you know, that brings another aspect because, again, if you can catch them early on in development, then they haven't developed all these accommodations that are good. It's okay to develop an eye turn and to develop the ability to suppress one eye because when the eye turn happens and you suppress one eye, it's so that you don't see double. Right. And we'd rather no one see double. But if we can catch that early enough and change that developmental process, then it becomes much easier to correct. Even though there's no critical period and it can always be corrected, it's mm -hmm. certainly easier when they're younger and may yeah. not require as many interventions or as long of intervention. Um, yeah, we, we certainly saw that with me and with Abby, <laughs> for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you help parents with when they need accommodations for their child in the classroom? If they're in therapy and they have been struggling in school, what kinds of things do parents need to know? So first of all, they need to know that vision problems do contribute to difficulties in school because some people don't understand that fact at all. Right. And we, we often will write letters for patients. You know, there is actual studies that show that someone with strabismus, as in your case and your daughter's case, are 28% slower at filling out a multiple choice answer sheet. That's not even reading the questions. It's not understanding the test. It's just filling out the bubble sheet. So it slows you down when your eyes don't track together as a team. There's other studies that show that motor coordination is deficient in people with 
eye coordination problems as well. So there's all these aspects that we look at, and, and not every situation is the same because some people are able to do well even though they have an eye turn, but that's the, the norm. So we look at the situation, we look at how a child performs on different standardized tests, and then we'll write a letter to the school with recommended accommodations to help accommodate for those problems. And then we advocate with the school to either give them a a 504 plan for those accommodations or even do an individualized education plan to help them get past some of those difficulties. Okay. Are they usually just for a certain time frame when they're in therapy or does it end up being ongoing afterwards also? So it certainly depends on the situation. I I have some patients with severe vision problems that they are not going to be fully corrected in the long term. For instance, nystagmus or shaking of the eyes is a very common one I'll write permanent accommodations for because they just, they can't get as good a clarity when their eyes are shaking all the time. It's the condition that you're, some kids are born with and it doesn't go away. It can get better through therapy and there's different things we can do to gain depth perception and those types of things. But those accommodations will never go away. The vast majority of my patients, though, that I write accommodations for, it's a temporary thing as they're going through therapy until we correct the problem. Because the, the goal is certainly to return them to mainstream as quick as possible. Right. Okay. Um, and you've also done a little bit of education of the teachers in that regard too, correct? I have. I've been invited into mostly charter schools to talk with teachers about what aspects of vision can affect learning in the classroom. And it is a difficult thing for teachers to understand as well. There, there's been more movements in the legislature with educating teachers on the, the vision screenings and those types of things. But that's something that teachers don't necessarily learn in their educational program of how vision affects learning. Right. It's not like there's a class on it or anything when they're going through school, right? <laughs> not at all. Unfortunately. I wish Um, there was. Yeah, me too, because we had an accommodation for my son, and I don't think the teachers even looked at it. They looked at the kind of work that he did when he did his work and thought he didn't need any kind of accommodation. But it was, you know, he wouldn't do the work most of the time. (laughs) So, you know, that didn't help so much. Well, and sometimes there are vision problems that are not necessarily readily visible to someone. So, you know, they'll look at someone and say, the child's eyes look normal to me. I don't see any reason to make accommodations. There are things that can cause problems that that they can't see. So the best thing to do is communicate a lot. Like I say, I write lots of letters and try my best. And I have had even phone conversations with teachers and IEP groups to try and help them understand in extreme situations what's going on and and to understand more what's going on with the kids so they understand how to accommodate better for it but it's a difficult situation because the purpose of the accommodations is to equalize the playing ground for all kids and make sure that that opportunity to learn is the same for all and i think that Sometimes the the bias gets put in that those accommodations are asked for no reason and shouldn't be there because it gives an unequal learning opportunity, meaning that it gives them extra advantages. Uh, 
but that's just a misunderstanding. The more education we get out there to teachers, the better. Right. I think that's a critical piece. I'm not sure exactly what needs to happen to increase that education, but certainly that it would be great for teachers to have a little more of that understanding for sure. What are some things that, that we should watch for as clues that a child may need help with their vision or even so, an adult? It's good to look at the general developmental milestones first. Are they learning to crawl at the appropriate age, learning to walk at the appropriate age? Uh, is their motor coordination working well as a toddler? When vision works well, it leads and guides all the motor development. And when it doesn't, it interferes with that motor development. So you'll see certain things. I, I have patients sometimes come in that their only complaint is my child is nine years old and can't ride a bicycle and we're not sure why. And that's a motor complaint. And people would think that that balance has nothing to do with vision. But balance is a very key component. Vision is a very key component in balance, I should say. So developmental milestones, uh, riding up or downhill, so, or having very poor spacing in your handwriting can be a vision problem. Certainly headaches is something that you want to pay attention to. Holding the book too close or too far away, wiggling a lot when you're reading or covering an eye when you're reading. In fact, there's a great list of symptoms on COVD's website. There's also a list of symptoms here in Utah on the school screening manual that it talks about list of symptoms that teachers can look for. I don't know if they have that in every state, but they have it here in Utah. But anytime a kid is struggling with distance or with wiggling their head a lot back and forth, that can be an indication of double vision or an eye problem, head tilts, head turns, those types of things. I didn't even realize my daughter was covering her eye a lot when she read until I specifically asked her that checklist of questions that's in that book, When Your Child Struggles. Yeah. And that's when she admitted that she liked to read in bed with her pillow over one eye so that it was just easier to read. And I think that's the hardest thing because as parents, when we read with our kids, we, we look at the book with our kids. We don't look at what our kids are doing. So you're not sitting in front of your kid. And certainly if you're sitting in front of your kid, they're looking down at the book. So you may not see what their eyes are doing or if they're closing an eye or if they're doing something. So it's a good idea to get in front of them and see how they, how they attack that problem of reading and what they're doing with their eyes. And I hadn't noticed it at all with her. I didn't watch her reading in bed, certainly, you know, but I don't know if she did it all the time or if it was just when she was more tired that she would make that accommodation for herself. And I've gone in classrooms where I've seen kids resting their head on their hand and you think they're just resting their forehead there, but they're actually covering part of their eye with that same hand. Mm -hmm. And you can see it if you look for it, but you have to look for it. Right. Definitely. I wanted to just touch on a couple of other little things that are part of, of the vision therapy practice, just so people kind of had a few more ideas of what it can do. I know in my first podcast, I addressed the fact that it can help patients who've had a stroke. Also, people who have a brain injury, you know, of any kind. You also do some things with 
sports vision therapy, right? Yes, I do. And you touched on brain injury. That includes mild traumatic brain injury or concussion as well. One thing that people don't realize about concussions, about 50% of people that have a concussion have visual symptoms. And often it can cause problems that are persistent with vision as well. But sports vision is, is more enhancement training. So trying to increase reaction time, eye-hand coordination, make depth perception better than average. And those are skills that are sought out by professional teams. We have worked with Major League Baseball teams, with members of the U.S. ski team. So there is a lot of opportunity in those areas, but we try to get younger kids to come in and start looking at sports vision training as well. Certainly, we can make your visual skills really good. And if you have no athletic skills, you're still not going to be a great athlete. (laughs) (laughs) But vision in general can give you that extra edge and make you an even better athlete. So that's the goal is to try and enhance those visual skills such that they're enhancing your motor performance as well. So there's even a new area of vision training in what they call e-athletes or electronic athletes, which kind of boggles my mind a little bit. But we have patients that come in that are competitive in video games and they want to increase their reaction time and their eye movement time so that they can be better at video games as well. Super interesting. Yeah. Do you have a lot of those kind of patients? We have a, a handful, not a lot right now. Yeah. It so, seems like I, kind of a small niche. <laughs> yeah. And I know there are practices across the nation that are working with e-athletes as well. In the Sports Vision Association meetings, we're starting to see talks on the performance enhancement of e-athletes. Okay. And are there practices where they're mainly just doing sports vision therapy? So there aren't. There are a few practices that are dedicated to sports vision only. I have several friends, one in Florida, one in Idaho, that have sports vision only practices. They're usually in a area where, for instance, in a gym or in a a training facility. So they're more geared towards that. But a lot of the doctors that do sports vision do other things as well. And the ones that have sports vision only practices often have other practices where they do other things as well. Okay. That makes sense. Um, Do you have any favorite home activities that we can suggest to people? Anytime I talk to people about home activities for general home activities that anyone could do, the first thing I tell people is go outside more. (laughs) Okay. Because, Vision develops when you have motor action. So if you're outside on the playground or throwing balls or or getting active, you're much more likely to develop good visual skills in that situation than you are staring at a phone screen. So get outside as much as possible. That being said, there are some good visual games and, and things that you can do indoors as well. A lot of the activities that I like are the older games for instance the you've probably seen the fishing game that has little plastic fish that pop up and down and close and open their mouths and you have a little fishing pole with a magnet on it right as those fish rotate around the board you're learning skills of watching 
and it's called a pursuit eye movement as it goes around the board. You're learning some eye hand coordination by trying to get that fishing pole in. So that's a great game. Balance games like Jenga or stacking dice, those types of things help as well. There's some good visual perceptual games like Set is a great visual perceptual game for older kids. There's a game called Swish. That's a good game for older kids. For toddlers, if you're looking for things like iPad applications, there's a pretty good visual perceptual game called Bugs and Buttons. I I particularly like Bugs and Buttons too. There's another visual memory game called Monster Hunt. That's actually a free game. So those are all just general visual development activities. You can also do things that we used to do when we're little, when we were little, but I don't know if a lot of people do it anymore, like stringing Cheerios on on to a string. You know, we used to put it on the, the Christmas tree at Christmas. That's a good fine motor activity that involves vision or those types of crafts. They're all going to help with that general visual development. Well, and when you said go outside, what I started to think about was the fact that that's going to develop that you're, you're going to have more opportunities to see far away, which we don't that have true. inside and, and or looking at a, a screen, right? Yeah, and, and, that, and we know that affects general visual development as far as the glasses prescription as well. There, there's studies that show the more time you spend outside, the less likely you are to be nearsighted. Um, and with a society that consistently spends more time indoors and on a screen, we're not doing very good things to our vision. There is also studies that show the more time you spend on a screen, the more likely you are for your eyes to turn inward. I can remember one patient in particular that we were working with in therapy that she was making progress and doing really well, getting closer. And then she went to a girl's camp where she was gone for a week and didn't have her phone. She came back and her eyes were 100% straight. And I, I said, what happened? And she said, well, the only thing I've changed is I went to girls camp and wasn't on my phone. And I said, no more on your phone. Stop. <laughs> so, so that's a good example of getting outside helped her to integrate her vision better. And, and I will tell you, as she got back on her phone over the next few weeks, her eyes started to turn in again. Uh, So behavior can definitely affect how your vision develops and how it changes. And there are some kids that have more tendencies to have eyes turn inward or become more nearsighted because of those visual habits. Excellent. I think everyone needs to be aware of those things and do more of the practices that will help our vision to get better instead of worse, right? Yeah. Yeah, and truthfully, spending more time outside and playing outside would be better for many aspects of our lives. So Exactly. That's what, I, that's what I'm saying. Every aspect of our life could be improved if we all just went outside more, right? Yeah, I'm a big believer in lots of more playground play. So. <laughs> and adults need a playground play too, right? I, I totally agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think so. All right. Well, I love all of the comments that, that you've made today and the in- instruction for people of what they should be doing. Hopefully, we'll get some feedback from the people who are listening on maybe categories that we could delve into a little more deeply in the future. Would that be something you, you could do with us perhaps down the road a little bit? Absolutely. Okay. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for answering all those questions today. And we'll look forward to uh, doing this again sometime. Thank you, Denise. Thank Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Our Sight. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, add a review, and share it on your favorite social media. You can also ask questions or suggest a guest by visiting my Facebook page, Healing Our Sight, and more information is found on my website, healingmysight.com. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.